Welcome to the second episode of the RevTem podcast. Review of Democracy is a new journal issued by the Democracy Institute at the Central European University. My name is Kasia Nowitzka and I am one of the journal's editors. Our today's guest is Samuel Moyn, professor of jurisprudence and professor of history at Yale University, who wrote many books about theory and intellectual history of the human rights. He's also a podcaster from time to time and a pretty active Twitterian. Welcome, Professor Moyn. Thank you for having me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. We are recording the podcast two days before Joe Biden's inauguration when the podcast will be released. The topic of our today's conversation is precisely American democracy after Trump. Let me start with a problem of Trump's place in the American history. In your piece published in the New York Review last year, but you also repeat this claim in your today's piece, you reminded us to be cautious with hard historical analogies comparing Trump's political style to fascism. You also warned about treating this presidency as an aberration that says nothing about the United States. So I wanted to ask you, what does, in your opinion, the storming of the US Capitol of 6th January say about American democracy? And what does it say, the fact that the impeachment procedure was launched against Trump twice, that, was, that happens never before in the US American democracy history? Well, uh, to begin with, fantastic questions. Um, and we're all interpreting with, you know, fragmentary information. So it, it, the January 6 events were, were, were frightening. Um, I, I was surprised by them. Uh, on the other hand, we, we are only learning more and more each day of, about what, what really went on. Um, and that, that will probably take place for years. Um, you know, from from the beginning, it's been clear that uh, tr Trump had a a a hold over um, his followers, you know, and many more voters than obviously, you know, tens of millions than were involved on January six, um, of of which maybe three hundred or five hundred um, breached the Capitol. Um, and, you know, what we infer from that is that, um, there are politically mobilized people in the United States. Now, in general, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It depends on what their values are and how they pursue them. Uh, and, you know, so I, I, what, what I want to do is, is, you know, acknowledge the, you know, the extremely serious event that happened January 6th, but make sure we interpret it correctly. So the first and most important thing I, I want to say is that um, the, the overall day showed that Trump was driven to incitement out of rage at not even controlling his own, you know, alleged henchmen that, you know, 
it was clear by this point that Mitch McConnell, who I think has probably been more powerful than Trump, the, the master of the Senate, um, was not going to help Trump in this desperate attempt to engage in a kind of auto coup. Um, more extraordinarily, I think Mike Pence, the vice president who was elevated to that, to national fame by the Trump movement, um, abandoned Trump at this decisive moment. Um, and of course the, the, the events led more Republicans to um, vote for Joe Biden's victory than would have otherwise. Um, so from the perspective of like the, the, those actually holding power and the results, the day was a massive loss for Trump. Um, now, it, it is scary that there are, are, there are these roving bands of white nationalists. Um, and, you know, I think we need to take caution and imagine what could happen if there were more of them. If they chose to use violence, remember that none of them fired a gun. Uh, one person fired a gun. It was a policeman who killed that confused young woman. Um, you know, maybe it could have been worse. Maybe it was an accident that security, you know, let them in um, to, to all intents and purposes. I think to, to know how scary an event it in fact was, we have to go further but I, I, and learn more. But I, I just think that um, we would make a mistake if we saw it at, Trump's role in it as anything more than the last desperate act of someone who had had failed really all along uh, to the extent he wanted to exercise lots of power, he failed to do so over four years. And so, uh, except of course, when he, you know, let Mitch McConnell or others kind of institutionalize you know, familiar right-wing ideology like tax cuts or, or putting, you know, reactionary judges on the bench. So it's, it's an early sign of something that could become um, like really abnormal beyond what we've seen in the Trump years, but I, I'm hesitant to generalize too much about kind of Trump's voters from the behavior of that mob um, not least because they're, they're people who need to be, you know, convinced to vote differently. Um, you know, if, if, if America's going to survive uh, in, in the coming decades. So, um, it, 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 you also asked about precedents in American history. I think Trump's unique, you know, but, um, many of the things he draws upon are authentically American traditions. Um, there are some resemblances to politicians abroad um, as well. Um, and, and the question is, you know, in the end, what, what are the, the best ways of measuring his significance? Um, I think he's, um, in the way that some politicians abroad have done, allowed us to see some unholy forces that have been at work, you know, in, in lots of histories, including American history. But so far, 
um, I'm not I, I, I'm not sure if um, those forces are as 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 scary in the in the short term as a lot of others mm -hmm. seem to think. So would you say that it's more a continuation rather than a rapture in the American history, or let's say a continuation of the so-called paranoid style of American politics? Look, I, th I think it's a break, no doubt, um, relative to what came before. Um, and liberals uh, had a very different understanding of America and, and, and hopes for its future than Trump has. So there's no, there's no denying that the experience that many have had over the last four years is one of break. And that must mean that there's something that he's brought about which makes America seem strange and unfamiliar to them. But I think that, um, you know, there's much more continuity than meets the eye. So with all these arguments, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to um, deny that Trump is bad or original, just the contrary. I'm trying to figure out what's old and what's new um, without seeing him as, a, as an absolute break um, or a foreign import um, or as exceedingly dangerous because I think the record shows that someone in his position could be but he wasn't, and we have to understand why that was and what, what opportunities it gives us to make sure that nothing like this happens again. Yeah, that's true. So would you agree perhaps that Trump will be gone, but his supporters will stay with us? Because for example, Jan Werner Miller claims that the blame for the fact that Trump is Trumpists will stay with us should be put on the liberals who constantly stigmatized those people as Trumpists and this way created this set of values that actually they believe in. I, I do think that um, just from a, a kind of boring mercenary perspective, whatever the response to Trump was over the last four years, it failed miserably. Um, just to judge by election returns in which more people supported him than before. Um, now, again, I sympathize completely with those who've been horrified by Trump and just wanted to repudiate him um, since that's the natural reaction. Uh, and some of the things he's done have been vile. Um, so, I, I'm not sure I would go as far as Jan if if the claim is that, you know, we we have alienated Trump's followers and made it more difficult for them to change their minds. I think that's true to a limited extent, but I think the real question is, what are the liberals prepared to do uh, to decrease polarization and um, win you know, elections more resoundingly on their terms, because we're going to see some folks who think that the right can capitalize on the Trump years. Um, and they're not going away, even if Trump doesn't run or doesn't succeed or is, you know, accused of crimes or whatever. So 
I think, you know, I would put it this way that um, 70 odd million voters is a lot of people and they're very different. You know, they're not all the same. Once we stop reducing them to, you know, fascist um, QAnon Q plotters, uh, who plotters, then we, we see that some number of them, probably tens of millions, many of whom voted for Barack Obama, are looking for love. And that comes in the form of recognition, you know, of the kind I think Jan was probably talking about, but it also comes in the form of like policies that meet their needs. Because, you know, in the end, what we have is a bunch of victims attacking victims who are even worse off. That's kind of like the story of, of you know, not just, you know, American history lately and for most of its time, but also even worse situations like genuine fascist um, politics. So, you know, my sense is, is that if we precisely by making the situation seem less dramatic, we can see how much opportunity we have to save the situation in time, in the time we have allowed to do so. So how to interpret the fact that more voters, um, Trump gained more votes than it was in 2016? Was it a, is it a sign of a deeper polarization that is now already happening? Or was it once again the identity card that played so well in 2016 elections? So, you know, I don't think we should make too much of the fact that he increased his gains just because many, many more people voted. Um, still, it's interesting that the Republicans as a party did pretty well, um, even better than Trump. And Trump didn't suffer some kind of repudiation, some, you know, grievous defeat. Um, and so I, I would put less stock in the fact that more voted for him, although it's interesting that seemingly more women, more people of color did vote for him um, proportionally. Um, uh, I would put more stock in the fact that the, the responses to Trump for four years left his credibility intact, which is amazing because he's not credible. He's a buffoon and charlatan and evil. Uh, and so the question is, what would be a way of making clear how bad a choice he is? Well, I think you have to put a better choice on the table. Um, and, and the Democrats failed to do that clearly. Um, and so I, I think, um, it's, it's, it's partly identity. It's partly class, you know, as, 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 as big a factor as any. Um, and so the, the Democrats need to figure out how without selling their souls, you know, and adopting, you know, a, a kind of kinder, gentler white nationalism, which honestly they've stood for for decades, you know, since they built mass incarceration, they've declared a lot of wars against black and brown people. Um, how did the Democrats seize the opportunity and, and put out a credible vision for America that would kind of attract lots of voters rather than just enough? Yeah, and also today I saw the uh, poll that actually indicated that it is not the case of Trump that uh, Republicans want to vote for. 
it was um, if the Republican voters had a choice, they would they would uh, rather choose a person who is not Trump. So that's a kind of consolation uh, in our times now. <laughs> so I have uh, another question whether perhaps uh, Trump was the president of fear, the fear of yes. immigrants, the fear of uh, globalization, perhaps feminization and other things like right. that. He certainly, you know, I think all presidents reflect hopes and fears, but it's hard to deny that Trump reflected fears even more because um, it, it, it is, you know, obviously it's irrational to blame the, the fate of white Midwesterners stagnating um, on, um, you know, immigrants in particular, um, but even to think that, you know, manufacturing of, you know, the kind that made those places, you know, solidly middle-class could ever return in, in remotely the form, you know, it had. So, you know, I, I, I've interpreted the 2016 is much more of like a protest vote. Um, but, you know, how, how real the fears um, are, I think is hard to assess. Um, it, it may be that there's a, a lot of fear of living in a non-white country that, you know, this election showed is, is certainly very scary. I mean, I still think that's hard to square with the fact that there, there was an African-American president for which a number of these people, not huge numbers, but a, a fair number voted for. Um, so I, I, would, I would say it's, it's more about discontent. It's about awareness that America wants you know, a superpower is in decline. And I think that's, you know, with all the failed wars, um, it's, it's just obvious that it's, it's in decline as, as even on strictly military terms, it's in decline economically as a relative matter and nothing can stop it. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what that means for the Democrats, but I think it means that they need to find a way um, more than complacently superintending that decline and, you know, of, of meeting, you know, people's, you know, unhappiness about it and, and telling them a story that can make sense of their place in the world. But uh, do you think that then the Democrats, current Democrats are capable of producing such a narrative that would encompass all those people who are somehow neglect, neglected by Republicans, let's say? Um, I think that in theory, the Democrats are capable of, of a lot of things. Um, but I, I think, first of all, that, that what, what exactly a message that would go beyond kind of complacent restoration would look like is, is up for debate. You know, and I, I, haven't, I don't think anyone has, you know, rock solid um, answers about, you know, how to recruit um, a lot of former Trump voters to a, a better cause. Um, 
I think we can say that um, it seems as if there's not much of a will amongst mainstream Democrats even to try. Um, so the attempt was made to stigmatize Trump for four years and then run on a kind of anti-Trump or decency platform in 2020, but it didn't work very well. Uh, it only provided a bare majority um, for Joe Biden, you know, admittedly in the terrible, you know, undemocratic system with the electoral college and so forth that the United States has, but that's, that's the game. Um, so I would say, you know, we're, we're looking at a couple of years more of restoration politics um, and spurning the opportunity which is urgent to explore how it is the Democrats could evolve to, you know, manage the crisis. You know, it's not going to go away, um, and so the the sooner they kind of embrace the the need to evolve, the better. I think there's a better chance that they'll they're evolving on domestic policy than foreign policy, but. Um, I can't be sure, and I think it's the the results are likely to be pretty modest mm -hmm. um, from what I've seen. So trying to zoom out, but also staying in the let's say this restoration thing, rest restoration concept. Uh, maybe we can try to put his presidency in a broader context, basing uh, our approach on theory provided now by Jack Balkin. So to remind our listeners, in his recent book uh, on cycles of democracy, he claims that Trump's era is a cycle of polarization, possibly similar to the one that happened in the late 1890s. So this was also an age of the vast inequalities of wealth, of huge immigration waves, and the era of media producing invented stories to gain the new public. So it sounds somewhat familiar. But then, Balkin claims, came the progressive era and eventually the New Deal. So his theory gives American democracy a glimpse of hope that we are now in a period of a painful, but still a transition. So do you share his perspective? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generally, you know, happy to to sign on. Um, I think it's there's definitely a transition going on. It it could go different ways. Um, what I what I wouldn't do is coax from some kind of theory of kind of the way American history works any extra optimism um, about which direction it will head next because it seems like there are open possibilities. Um, in particular, you know, you have the, the, some on the right saying it's, it will be more credible for them to build a working class majority than for the woke left. Um, I hope they're wrong and I especially hope they don't succeed, but um, it, it, it if there's going to be a kind of realignment, I think the shape of it is very indeterminate right now. And so uh, my general, I mean, Jack's drawing very heavily on 
like an empirical political science account of the way things work. And I would just place much more emphasis on agency to, to, to be creative um, and do things that aren't anticipated by history. Um, so, you know, the guidance of history is, is not some set of laws that will unerringly be followed. Instead, history shows that, you know, it, 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 it's up to, to, to human beings in which direction to take history and the same is true now. So in these terms, do you think the, that Biden is that agent that will heal the American democracy? Well, clearly not. Um, not enough people supported him. You know, he's, he barely won. So um, it, he's not a Franklin Roosevelt figure who won repeated elections massively with a program, um, you know, and so I, I think it's, I'm very skeptical that Biden is more than a kind of placeholder, you know, playing for time. Uh, and I, I don't know who, who will follow him. It could be good or bad. But we agree that it couldn't be worse. It, it could be worse. I mean, Trump could have won the election. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure Biden was the worst candidate among the Democrats. Um, I don't think he was the best. Uh, and, but mainly I think the verdict of the electorate is that he's, he's not in command of a mandate that is a super majority mandate. Yeah, another thing that comes into my mind now is the fact that big tech companies are also now a big source of polarization in the society. And the fact that Kamala Harris is a vice president is also worrying because now she, uh, there has been a lot written about the fact that she will be not really challenging the big tech companies. And it's a big issue now. You know, I think that's, I think, you know, there's cause for concern, uh, you know, especially given the role that the, you know, um, Twitter, et cetera, played in, you know, in, in containing Trump at the very end of his term. Um, but, I, I, you know, the vice president is, it has no real duties. It's not clear exactly what role she will actually play other than wait for her turn to run for president. But there's definitely a broader, you know, concern that we ought to have about the corporate friendliness of the Democrats, which goes back decades. And, you know, the tech companies are just the kind of new corporate overlords. Um, they introduce big new problems, um, but, you know, not the, the, the fact that, uh, that big business has friends in politics is not a new problem. Um, it's one we still have to solve, but one thing for sure is that it's not new. Yeah, that's true. Now there is uh, a lot that has been written about it, but I like especially one comparison between the political constitution and the corporate constitution that is now, that are now competing with each other, with the latter yes. the forceful. Yes, that was, that was someone wrote about that yesterday. I think um, so, yeah. 
uh, I, I read that piece too. It was very, oh, that was, uh, sorry, that was in uh, Michael Lynn's piece that dropped today. Um, no, I, I think there's a lot to the basic idea that, um, that the, the political constitution proved more durable than many expected in the last four years, even as the corporate constitution uh, or let's say, you know, collective, you know, control of business proved even less than, than we might have hoped. Um, so I, I don't agree with everything in that article, but it's true that private power is, is probably a much greater, you know, um, worry about our time than public power. One last question. Would you, what do you think would be the biggest source of social, of social challenges for the Biden's presidency? You know, I think it will be a quiescent time. You know, um, I, could, I may turn out to be totally wrong, but I think as of two days from now, um, people will take a break from history. Um, and that's actually, you know, much scarier to me than a lot of alternatives. Um, because if, if we do learn something from the Trump years, it, it is that there are certain nefarious possibilities that could come about if we don't, you know, save the situation. So, I mean, I'm, you know, it's not, you know, I've been, you know, chastised for um, downplaying Trump's fascism, but it's, only in the name of, of my belief in that the alternatives now are socialism and barbarism. So, you know, it's not that I think we're, we're, we're facing, you know, clear sailing now that we've gotten the ogre out of the way. It's, it's rather that, you know, the risk is that Biden will represent, you know, complacency not just himself, but for a huge number of Americans who will go back to, you know, using Facebook for cat photos rather than anti-fascism. And, you know, that was the, that was the mistake um, in the Obama years as all of these forces came to a head. And if we repeat it, there will be disaster in our future. But still let's hope for the best in humans. I always. <laughs> Thank you a lot for the conversation, Professor Moy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you wish to be updated about the newest episodes of the Revden podcast, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Soon we will publish another conversation about the US democracy. We invite you also to our website where you can find our first pieces discussing America's current situation. Thank you and until next time. Oops.